So it is good to see everybody here this morning. And it is different looking with people with different, without masks on and going, I think I know who that is. And I say that with all seriousness because um, Matthew may remember this. I had met him and then he was standing out the doors here uh, one, I think it was Sunday evening. He didn't have his mask on because he was outside. And I was talking to him and I said, have I met you before? <laughs> I said, yeah, put that mask on so I know who you are. Uh, which is a true story, so um, glad to be here. Some people feel more comfortable than others, so we welcome those that are online with us this morning. And uh, just be patient with one another. If you see someone doing the moonwalk away from you, you know you've gotten too close for their comfort level. I've already done that once this morning. Someone got a little close, and I, it's going to take a few years to relearn some things, and there's just a lot for us to go through. Also, in regards to the um, mission moment, uh, that was Michael. Michael's been over there for a number of years. He was there when John Taylor was there. John's a personal friend of ours. I went to school with him. Marjorie grew up with uh, John's wife, Jackie, in Tilsenburg at North Broadway Baptist, and they're connected with ABW out of the States. Um, so he will work as the conduit for us. Uh, it's been great. Uh, Victor, and I'm not sure if Victor's here this morning or not. I haven't seen everybody. Uh, but Victor had connected us with a church just outside of Kiev uh, that's in need of some help. Uh, that his home church has been supporting. Um, so I contacted John, and John quickly was able to put me in contact with Michael, and both of them said to me, hey, we've spoken in that church that you want to support in Kiev uh, on numerous occasions. So they have a strong connection with it. And that already started off that uh, with the Ukrainian fund, um, this church that was in need has already been advanced some money out of that fund uh, to help them through the meantime. So what we give will we'll go again to this church outside of Kiev uh, to help them. And if Victor was here, I'd get him to pronounce the name for you. It's not as easy as the church that Victor was attending when he was in Kiev, because that was Grace, I believe, uh, Grace Baptist, which is much easier. So, uh, continue to pray how the Lord might touch your hearts, and also pray for Ukraine, for the needs that they have and uh, a number of things came across my uh, email this week and for a number of the places that are ministering to people, again, that are scared, that are concerned, and they're able to uh, meet needs with people and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, so we want to continue to uphold and to lift the people of Ukraine and pray for peace that an end will soon come uh, in regards to this armed conflict. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, God's hand of mercy will be upon them. Okay, we're into Philippians chapter 2, moving through it. And, and this morning we want to talk a little bit about what I called commendations and recommendations. Now, who, along, who among us doesn't like a commendation? A recognition for something that we've done, we've accomplished, perhaps a recognition at work for our work ethic, or in general when people say nice things about our character. In a job application, you might call it references. In, in years ago or years gone by, you'll read in some of the old English books uh, that you might have had to read in high school, they talk about a, a letter of introduction. So the letter of introduction would be used to introduce somebody and, and vouch for their character into a new community. It could be used if you're going to a different community to look for work, then you would get this letter of introduction. Uh, that you could hand them and they'd say, hey, we know this person, he's a friend of mine, and you know who I am, and I, I vouch for his character. We, matter of fact, 
today, while we don't have letters of introduction per se, recommendations are as popular as ever. When the old-fashioned print paper was around, uh, you would get your print paper, and inside the print paper, you'd find dining ads or dining or dining guide, which would give you reviews on a restaurant. Uh, you would find uh, on Friday night, uh, you'd find the movie reviews, so you could look up and see what the movie was all about and if they liked it or not. And, and Saturday was my favorite because Saturday would come the auto section. And the auto section would have the auto reviews about what the new vehicles were like, how fast they would go, and what they thought they would be. But today it's a little different. Today people ask for social media recommendations. You'll see them come across your news feed once in a while. Anybody know a good restaurant? Anybody know a good place to stay? You all, and, and, and let's not forget those Google reviews, an opportunity to leave comments behind. Well, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul even talks about letters of recommendation. We read this in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on our behalf? Surely not. The letter of recommendation we need is in yourself. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It is carved out not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. In our passage that we're going to look at this morning in Philippians, that's exactly what Paul does. He writes two commendations, one for Timothy and one for Epaphrodites. These commendations, though, come with a backdrop. They're written in a context. The whole context, the letter of the Philippians. Now, to get our mind wrapped around this and to get us in the proper under understanding of what Paul's about to share with us, we need to understand where we've been so far. So let's review. In the letter to Philippi, Paul speaks of a growing love needed on their behalf. He speaks of a love that overflows from their hearts. He talks about the main thing being the gospel of Jesus Christ. He asks if we are worthy to live if our life is worthy of the gospel, to live a life worthy of that gospel. He asks us to have the same mind as Christ, living in humility, putting ourselves second. Remember our little acronym, Jesus, or joy? Jesus, others, yourself. Paul reminds us of that. He calls us to work out our salvation. Our lives practically should live up to where we are positionally before God. And finally, last week, we spoke of having an attitude that isn't of grumbling and complaining and arguing. And that brings us to this week. Verse 19 serves as a bit of a transition as Paul holds up two examples of people who follow Christ, of people who are working out their own salvation. Let's just pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And as we open it this morning, draw our hearts in, draw our minds in, that we might be able to look at the letter. Help us through your spirit to apply it to our lives and how 
this works out in our own lives as each of us seeks to work out our salvation, as each of us seeks to live for you. Pray in Christ's name. Okay, verse 19. In Philippians 2, 6 through 11, we get this call to be an imitator of Jesus Christ, to follow his example, the example of Christ. And in Philippians 3, 17, Paul calls us to follow his example. We read this, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Now, I don't believe that was ever intended to lift Paul up and to elevate himself. I'd like to think it was more in line with what we read out of 1 Corinthians 11.1. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So who are these examples that we're going to deal with this morning? Who are these two people that Paul holds up for us as, as people to follow as they follow Christ? Well, the first one is Timothy. And what do we know about Timothy? Well, we know a few things about Timothy. Timothy is multi-ethnic. In Acts 16, 1 and 2, we read this. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers. Timothy was multi-ethnic. Notice I didn't say race. God created one race, the human race, but there's different ethnicities with inside that. And that should never stop us, no matter our ethnicity, from serving God. It didn't Timothy. Scripture would indicate from 2 Timothy 1.5 that Timothy's dad was likely not a believer. We read this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Now, that's not to discount the role of a father in a family situation. Fathers are really important. But at the same time, we don't want to underestimate the role of a mother or grandmother or grandfather, though it's not mentioned here, in the spiritual development of children. Those relatives that are able to come alongside of us, whether it's a godly grandmother or a godly grandfather or an aunt or an uncle, play huge roles. It did in Timothy's life. It was through his grandmother and his mother that Timothy came to faith in Jesus Christ, that he followed Christ. What else do we know about Timothy? Timothy was young, possibly around the age 30, give or take a few years. There's a little speculation with that. The term in 1 Timothy 4.12 culturally is used of individuals under 40, but we do think Timothy was younger than that. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So in that verse, Paul is saying, hey, age isn't as important as you want to make it out to be. Young believers can do many things. What's important is a person's character. It's that character that matters. So he encourages Timothy to be an example in speech and how he talks and what he says, in his conduct with others, in his love for others and his love for Christ, 
in his faith and in his purity. Character matters. We also know Timothy was a little sickly in the sense that he had some sort of element. It would appear or ailment. It would appear to be digestive. In his desire to live a pure life, it seems that Timothy had abstained from wine altogether. Rather than wine becoming a, a temptation for him and drinking too much, he just abstained from it. In 1 Timothy 5.23, we read this, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So the wine was used for medicinal purposes. From outside the passage, that's what we know of Timothy. But what do we learn from Timothy from inside our passage today? Why such a commendation? Why such a recommendation? Why is Timothy held up for an example? Well, I think there's five things we can look at in regards to Timothy. Let's first read those first five verses starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So sending Timothy was going to remain on hold for now until Paul's current situation had resolved itself. His being imprisoned, was he going to live and die? But the goal of the visit, the goal of sending Timothy was reciprocal. It was going to be beneficial for both parties. Uh, the church in Philippi would learn of the outcome of the imprisonment how it went with Paul, and Paul would learn the true state of the church to which he was entrusting that true state would be one of cheerfulness, that Timothy would, would bring him good news from what was going on in the church of Philippi. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 opens up in the original with the phrase, a man, mine, equal. And that's a reference to Timothy. I think the New Living does a, translation does a good job in conveying the intended meaning. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. Timothy was the right-hand man for the mission. He was the one to go. If Paul couldn't go, this was the man that would stand in his place. Why? Paul goes on to explain. First, Timothy loves Jesus. How do we know that? Paul wouldn't have sent somebody. Paul would not have held up someone in the, as an example that first didn't follow Christ. And that is all evidence that Timothy didn't seek his own interest. He was rather concerned about the interest of others. He was obedient to the commands. Look at verse 21 and 22. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Christ, to Jesus Christ. He has served with me in preaching the good news. Jesus was first place in the life of Timothy. What mattered to Jesus mattered to Timothy. So the first thing on the list of commendations is Timothy loves Jesus. The second thing was 
Timothy places himself second. Look at verse 20. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? Timothy would be concerned for their interest, what was going on in their lives. A real concern, a heartfelt desire to live in obedience. Out of his love for God would overflow a love for others. His heart was transformed. And in that transformation of following Jesus Christ, love was what was coming forth. Timothy, Timothy understood what Paul had written in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. See, so it learned the antidote to self-centeredness was to enlarge your heart for others, to share their burdens, to be concerned for their interests. If everyone is ensuring that the other is cared for, then we'll recognize when we ask too much of each other. See, that's the big concern. Okay, I'm always giving, giving, giving. We know we only have so much to give. But if we're all seeking the best interest of each other, then we'll know when someone's crossing that line and we'll say, hey, maybe you need to, to slow it down. We don't want you to burn yourself out. That means as a body, you're giving and you're putting others first, but you're also watching and looking and saying, hey, you know what? Are we, we tasking you too much? Is this too much for you? Do we need to pull it back a little bit? We don't want to wear you out. Do you see the reciprocal relationship we'll have with each other when we do that? We'll be looking out for each other. And that means that you as a church body will look out for your deacons. That you won't wear them out, demand them too much of them. Because you know that they have things they care for, whether it's a farm or a business or a work and a wife and children, that we watch out for each other. That means you watch out for your elders as they watch out for you. You don't want to be a burden on them. They want to care for you, but you need to care back. There's that reciprocal relationship. That means you watch out for your pastor. That means you make sure that you don't burn your pastor out and ask too much of him. Because your pastor will have a family. You may have little children. You may have grandchildren. Somewhere in between. There's that reciprocal relationship. Timothy understood that. Looking out for the other's health and welfare. What is best in Christ for us? Verse 21 says this, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy was concerned what was for their best interest, for the people's best interest in Christ. As one commentator put it, it says nothing about his fellow Christians, but it is rather his solemn reflection when he remembers that in a world, in the world of selfishness and self-seeking, it is such a rare thing to find a man like Timothy who is really anxious to promote the welfare of other people. That was Timothy. He also commends Timothy for being reliable, trustworthy, dependable. Take your choice of words. 
Verse 22, but you know how Timothy has proved himself, proven himself worthy. The same word is used in 2 Corinthians 8.2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed a wealth of generosity on their part. It denotes the idea of testing proof by trial to be tried and approved. Timothy had been in the trenches with Paul and found dependable, reliable, trustworthy. So I looked up the word dependable and found the definition. It means trustworthy and reliable. So I looked up the word reliable. As an adjective, it means consistently good in quality or performance, able to be trusted. As a noun, it means a person or a thing that has trustworthy qualities. That led me to look up trustworthy and the concept of why those would be used. Well, that means good, well-founded, well-grounded, authentic, attested, genuine, faithful, devoted, steady, steadfast, unswerving, unwavering, loyal, dedicated, truthful, honest, tried, and tested. All of those words could be used to describe Timothy. What words would people use to describe you? If we went to your employer, would that list come up? If we went to your wife or your husband, would these words come up? If we talked to your children, would they use some of these words to describe mom or dad? That you're loyal, dedicated, honest, tried and tested. He also uses a couple another, and I'm going to lump these two together. Talks about Timothy being humble and teachable. Timothy was both of these, and I think they're founded in that special relationship between the elder Paul and the protege Timothy. Look again at verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. When I think of Timothy as a young man, when he first met Paul, probably a teenager, how he humbly placed himself underneath Paul as a son would do with a father to learn a skill or a trade. Right? When, when kids were growing up, we've got to take our minds and put them back centuries into the Middle East and into Israel. And when the kids were growing up in that region, oftentimes they would do what their father did. So if dad was a farmer, you'd be a farmer. If dad was a stonemason, you were likely a stonemason. As a son with a father, and you learn from them, you learn the trade, you learn how things work. Timothy humbly placed himself underneath the man. Think of that for a moment. A teenager. I don't know what you were like as a teen. Well, Paul shared a little bit with me. Uh, <laughs> but I won't use Paul as an example. But I know what I was like. And I know that we've all probably worked with a young person who has gone out into the work world or somebody that we know in general has started out in life and they don't like counsel. They don't want to hear it from anybody. They have all the answers. Pride can be an issue for all of us. 
but especially when you're a teenager coming out on your own. I heard the story of a father that was encouraging his 16-year-old son to move out of the house quickly. The son said, why do you want me to leave? Well, because right now you know everything, and in a few years you won't. So while you know everything, you better move. And I think of my own father jokingly with his children would say this to us. He said, you know what? Worst thing about having children, I said, what's that, Dad? He says, just about the time you get intelligent enough to carry on a good conversation, y'all get married and move out. But Timothy put that all aside. Even as a man around 30 now, he was willing to submit to Paul, to the wisdom that Paul could give him. I, I think of athletes. Athletes, in many cases, place themselves underneath a coach. I coached sports for many years with the kids, and I used to laugh. These kids could outskate me. <laughs> Once they got by, by about 10 years old, they could save my shots on goal on them, too. But I coached baseball and different things like that. And it's really true that when you look at coaches, oftentimes they have not gone as far professionally or in their careers as those that they coach. And sometimes the best players don't make the best coaches. Just ask Mr. Gretzky. But in regards to that, Timothy was like, I can learn from this man. And he humbly placed himself, placed himself underneath him. What a great attribute to live a life where you remain humble and teachable. To know that you don't have all the answers and you don't have to have all the answers, but that you can learn not only from God through Scripture, but you can learn from those that God brings into your life and my life. Have you remained teachable even as you've aged? Are you still willing to be taught and to be humble? Or do you think you have to have all the answers to everything that happens? Paul doesn't only commend Timothy, though, here, but he recommends Epaphrodites. Well, what do we know about Epaphrodites? Not a whole lot. Not as much as we know about Timothy. We could gleam a few things quickly before we dive into the passage because Epaphrodites is only mentioned in the book of Philippians. Well, we know he's the messenger from the church of Philippi to bring a gift to Paul while he was in prison. We know that much. We know that he was sent by the church of Philippi to aid Paul, to serve Paul. We know that he delivered the epistle of the Philippians to the church of Philippi after it was written when he returned home. It's about all we know except for what we're going to see in these next five verses. 25 through 30. I have thought it necessary to send, you to send to you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him. Therefore, 
that you may rejoice at, the seeing, at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So here, Paul commends or recommends Epaphrodites on four accounts, four reasons. First, and some of these are going to sound very familiar, Epaphrodites loves Jesus. That was evidenced in his work in the gospel ministry. Verse 25 again, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger to minister to my need. What a description. Brother, a term of affection and caring. Fellow worker, fellow soldier. He considered Epaphrodites to be a full partner in the gospel mission. Think of some of the others Paul uses those terms with. In 1 Thessalonians 3.2, it's used of Timothy. In Romans 16.3, Priscilla and Aquila uses the same term for them. You can read Acts, or yes, you can read Acts 18 and find out more how this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, had been forced out of Rome, then moved to Corinth. From Corinth, they moved to Ephesus to establish a church. They became a husband and wife church planting team. Missionaries. That's who Epaphrodites was lumped in with. It's a pretty good lot to be set in with and called together as part of one group. Second, Epaphrodites was dependable. In verse 25, he refers to him as the church of Philippi's messenger. The New Living Translation puts it this way, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. And then later in Philippians 4.18, we read this, I have received a full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So not only did Epaphrodites bring a gift and he successfully delivered it, but he was also a gift to Paul in his time of need. See, Paul was under house arrest, and he couldn't do a lot of things. So when they sent Epaphrodites, Epaphrodites was to serve him, to be an aid to him, to help him do the things that he couldn't. So Epaphrodites stayed in Rome, and he served Paul. He was found by Paul in that service to be reliable and trustworthy. Next, others. Verse 26. We've seen this before. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphrodites wasn't concerned about himself, but he was concerned about the people and the church that he called home, the church in Philippi. His longing and distress was born out of the fact that they were distressed. They were distressed over his illness and how he was doing. That same word, distressed, is used in Matthew 26 when it talks about Christ being in the Garden of Gethsemane. 2637 from Matthew. And taking with him Peter and two disciples, two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. See, Epaphrodites was sorrowful and troubled at heart. 
And what's Paul's response? Well, Paul's response, he sets the example here. It's obvious that his verdict of whether he's guilty or innocent is still up in the air. We know that Epaphrodites had proven himself useful during his time in Rome. He had helped meet the needs of Paul. He had served him well. But seeing his desire to return home, seeing that he was distressed because his home-sending church was distressed, Paul didn't stand in the way. Rather, Paul took a back seat. Paul took a back seat, and then he gave a recommendation so that no one would misunderstand why Epaphrodites was returning home. He had not failed in the mission, not in any way. Look again, verse 27. Indeed, he, Epaphrodites, was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, not only him but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Yes, Epaphrodites had fallen ill. God, though through his mercy, spared his life. And Paul was grateful for that, for the death of this brother, as he calls him, would have just made the whole situation a little more sorrowful for him while he was in prison. So, putting his needs second, Paul sends him. Paul says, you can go home. And he commends this commendation so no one misunderstands. In verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy and give him the honor that people like him deserve. So the acronym, Jesus, others, yourself, Epaphrodites put others first. And Paul, in his example, puts others first here too. Fourthly, Epaphrodites served at personal risk. This is the one that's a little different. It's hard to imagine that there was not some risk exposed exposure in the fact that Epaphrodites was serving a man imprisoned waiting to find out if he would live or die. There would be some risk in serving a prisoner of sort of equating yourself with that person. But look at verse 30. I think the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts the dots together for the readers and for the church in Philippi. Verse 34, he risked his life for the work of Christ and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. So while standing in as your representative here in Rome, the representative of the church of Philippi, Epaphrodites did almost die while he was serving as your representative. Isn't that what missionaries do for us? Are missionaries that we send out not our representatives on the field? Do they not take risks for us? There is an inherent risk for almost every, well, for any missionary, some more than others. They're going to fields and ministering to people groups. Those locations are not nearly as safe as staying here in Canada. Some of them are in conflict zones, not as big as what we see in Ukraine, but other conflict zones, other armed battles. 
Some of them are in areas where healthcare is very questionable, but they take the risk and they go. They go to serve others. I think of two of our missionaries that recently went to Poland for a few days to help out in this Ukraine refugee crisis. There was an inherent risk there. No one knows what's going to happen. I think of a friend of ours, it's actually, is going. They're on furlough. They serve in a closed country. So there's inherent risk all the time serving in a closed country and ministering the gospel. They're going to Romania for two weeks while on furlough in April because they can speak. They grew up in Ukraine. They can speak Russian. And they're going to translate for refugees for two weeks. There is an inherent risk in serving Jesus Christ in some of these fields. Are we willing to take risk in our own life? Our missionaries do for us all the time. Two friends, two fellow workers, two examples for you and I to follow. Held up. Held up as they work out their salvation. Paul celebrates the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul presents these men not to be held up. And this is the danger of preaching a sermon like this. We're not, we're not holding them up to give you some sort of checklist and go, okay, I do this, I do this. No, we hold them up as examples of people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have allowed the Spirit of God to mold them and to make them. And the question for us, do we allow God and His Spirit to mold us into a better version of ourselves? Allowing Christ to shine through us as He makes us shining lights, lighthouses for others, beacons, rescue beacons for a dying and lost world. That's why He holds these men up. He says they're working out their salvation. They are lights to the world around them. That's why He holds them back to the Philippians. That's why they're recorded in Scripture. They're examples for you and I to follow. Both of these men loved Jesus Christ. It was evident in their involvement in spreading the gospel. Jesus Christ was a priority. Make Jesus a priority in your life. Ever wonder how some marriages last 40, 50, 60, 65 years? That's because the couple make it a priority. You want a good marriage? Make it a priority. Do you want a good relationship with Jesus Christ? Make it a priority. And when you do, all the rest will flow out as you grow in your relationship with Christ. It will overflow from your heart. Both had a love for others. Put yourself second. Others. Jesus, others, yourself. Think about others before you think about yourself. Yes, there'll be times where you're going to need rest. That's not unbiblical. But putting others first isn't about being a doormat. It is, though, living unselfishly. Saying no to, to a selfish person is not necessarily selfish. We do that every day with our children, don't we? That's not what we're talking about. The idea is 
not to demand your own rights, not to argue your point with someone for the sake of being right when it really doesn't matter in eternity. Both were reliable, dependable, or trustworthy. Can people count on you? Matthew 5, 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Are you honest? Are you trustworthy? Are you one who overpromises and underdelivers at work? We should be those who underpromise and overdeliver at work, at home, in our church community, in our community at large. Know your limits. People will respect if you know your own limits. What people don't respect is when someone makes all these commitments. You can be talented as all you, as all get out, as the saying goes. You can have all kinds of talents and gifts. But if you overcommit yourself and you can't fulfill anything, that's usually when someone's scoffed at. That's usually when we look and say, well, they're not very reliable or very dependable. We need to be people who are dependable at home, in our families, in our relationships around us, in our friends, in our church family, and in the community where we live and interact. That Those words are used to describe us, somebody who is dependable and trustworthy. Both showed true humility. That's a lost thing in our world today, true humility. Social media is a great place to fish for a couple of comments and boost our egos. And talk about resumes. I've read some resumes and been astonished at how puffed up people can get on their own resumes. Humility. That's needed for us to be able to place ourselves second behind others. That's not to say we shouldn't affirm others because everybody needs to be affirmed. But in Proverbs 27, 2, we read this. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. See, it's not all about you and it's not all about me. It's all about Christ. But if we're really looking out for one another, then yes, there's a time to come along somebody and say, hey, you did a great job. Thank you. But that shouldn't come from you on yourself. So we don't need to do this. But as others, we should be coming alongside. And when we see somebody that's done something, especially a young person, you need to come alongside them and say, hey, that was great. Thank you. And God will use you to build them up in the Lord. True humility. Teachable. I'm going to share a couple of verses on teachable. The one also has touches of humility in it and the concept of being putting others first. But 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, not just the younger ones, but clothe, your, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then we read in Proverbs 12.1, To learn, you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. Pardon parents, if you don't let your kids you stupid, that's there in Scripture. In Proverbs 13, 18, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. 
Teachable is such a great quality, no matter your age. Are you teachable? Have you remained teachable throughout the years? And lastly, do you take risk? Are you willing to take risk for the gospel? I'm not speaking about being reckless, but do we move out of our comfort zones at all to share the gospel, the God's message of hope, the good news? Are we fearful of rejection? Are we willing to take our social standing, maybe give a little more to the gospel and have a few less of those luxuries that are afforded to our neighbors or friends? Giving up some of what God's given us to give to see the ministry continue. For others, the risk might be a greater cost. Perhaps God's calling you to step out in faith. And that stepping out in faith could be an economic risk. I'm going to trust God with my retirement and I'm going to do this now. Or it could be stepping out into the mission field, which might be a safety or health risk. Every missionary that leaves Canada knows there's an errant risk in what they're doing. I think they must think of Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Remember we've talked about this. We talked about this in Matthew chapter 28. Christ has always promised to go with us. So these are examples, examples for you and I. Timothy, Epaphrodites. There are many examples in the Bible of people who follow Christ, and as we follow Christ, we can also look at these people. But the question we have to ask ourselves individually this morning is, who are you following? All of us have our heroes. All of us have people we look up to. But who are you following? Whose trail blazed in front of you? Who do you let mentor you? Whose path are you walking behind? And if they're not ahead of you following Christ, then you're on the wrong path. Whoever you're following should be following the great example set by Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Timothy Epaphrodites. Father, we thank you for men and women in our lives that you bring into our life, that you cross our path, that cross our paths. For those who have gone before, witnesses to your power and your love in their lives. So, Father, as we look into our hearts this morning and we begin to ask questions of who we are following, May we all be following Jesus Christ. And may those who we look up to and who mentor and who we allow to speak into our lives, may they be people that are blazing a trail in following you. And Father, we pray for these qualities that we've seen in these two men, that we may look to develop in, their, in, in our own lives, that we might grow closer to you that we might grow more like you each and every day. So, Father, we celebrate with, with Paul this morning as we look at these lives that followed after you, these examples, not only for us, but for the church of Philippi and for those 
that have walked this earth in the 2,000 years since this letter was written. We thank you. We ask that we might be found faithful as we follow after you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.